You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This is Friday, uh, the week that Strong Towns, a bottom-up revolution to rebuild American prosperity has launched. And each day this week, we've had a different guest on to chat about the book. And we saved the absolute best for last. Those of you that have been with us for quite a while will immediately recognize the voice coming to us from somewhere in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome back to the podcast, Rachel Quidnow. How you been? Thank you so much. I've been great. How have you been in the midst of this uh, busy book tour season? <laughs> it's been surreal and very crazy, but it's uh, kind of like the fruition of a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of which you were involved with. When they asked me to do this week of these podcasts, I actually, my first request was, could we get Rachel? Uh So thank you for agreeing to do this. I was uh, just seeing an email from Kia earlier today of the day when we're recording. And it was the release of the new tour t-shirt. And I saw on the back, (laughs) the list of all the locations you're going to, and it's like half of all the States in America. No, it is. (laughs) Wow. Wow. This is quite a big thing. It's kind of crazy, but you know what we do. So, uh, This is just like the next step. Before we get started, catch us up on what you're doing. I know a little bit, but the people who I grew used to hearing your voice and then have missed you in your absence got a little faint whiff of what you were doing, but it's a year later, a year and a month later. How are things going? They're great. I'm living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a second year master's student at Harvard Divinity School. And yeah, it's been a pretty wonderful experience so far. It's it's fun to be back in school after working for several years. Life in Cambridge is wonderful. We sold our car when we moved here. So yeah, we're just walking and biking everywhere. It's very walk and bike friendly, making a lot of friends from all over the world and learning a ton of new things. So I kind of remember what you wound up doing this summer, but not Totally. I remember we talked about it a little bit last spring. Yeah. Well, you kindly wrote me a letter of recommendation, which helped me do what I did this summer. So thank you. I owe you more than just one letter of recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) So it was my pleasure. But what did you wind up doing? Yeah. So I was in a hospital chaplaincy training program at one of the major hospitals here in Boston, the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And yeah, I was uh, learning how to visit with people in the hospital and talk about their spiritual needs and be with them in times of crisis. So it was, it was very intense and not surprisingly, but I learned a lot, learned a lot about myself and got, it was a great privilege to like be with people during these really important moments in their lives. So glad I did it. Now you're back in divinity school, just so people have an understanding of what that is. What's your course load right now? What classes are you taking? Well, I'm in a very open-ended program, so I'm kind of just making it what I want it to be. Some people in my school are like trying to become ministers or professors or something. I'm not really on either end of that spectrum, but 
So my classes are all over the place. Um, I'm taking a class about Hindu goddesses and the Virgin Mary. I am taking a class about just war and jihad. I am taking a class about religious networks throughout history. Um, and then a class on peace and conflict transformation. So kind of all over the place. Um, but that's my style. So I'm just to reiterate, insanely jealous <laughs> of the experience that you get to have. I'm so happy for you. I'm glad it's working out. I'm glad it's been wonderful, but what a fantastic thing to be able to do. I'm just, I'm so happy. Thank you. Yeah, I am too. And it's going by fast. So I'm just trying to soak it all up. This is my last year. So, right. and we'll see what's next. They gave you the first choice of chapter in the book. You picked chapter 10, which I'll st say before we get started talking about it was the hardest chapter for me to write because it's the least, it's the one where I feel like the least on solid ground. So I, I kind of feel good talking with you about it because um, it's outside of my comfort zone really in many ways. Well, I was curious why you decided to close the book. Cause this is like the concluding chapter, you know, besides like the little final comments and things. Why did you decide to close the book with this chapter? Or did you? Did you write this chapter on its own and then in the editing process end up putting it at the end? It wasn't in the early outline, but it, it was in the outline that got approved finally by the publisher. There was a part of me when I was envisioning this book, kind of acknowledging that it wasn't good enough to just talk numbers. You know, it, it wasn't good enough to write an engineering planning book. Like my wife says, like, what's the meaning? You, you've got to give it a meaning. And I think one of the things that has happened with Strong Towns over the years is that our conversation has evolved from one based primarily on math to one that has like a deeper level of meaning. And, and I thought I would change things if I left that out. Well, you talk about like a lot of big overarching life questions and themes in here about you know, your family and religion. Not surprising that I would choose this chapter based on that. Why close the book with these like big, some of them unanswered questions? Instead of maybe I could see another way of closing the book being like, okay, here's your 10 things that you should go out and do right now to build strong towns. And that's sometimes the way that we close like articles on the website or things like that. So yeah, why this like more broad, spacious thinking and I, I don't know. This is where my mind is, first of all. These are the things that I struggle with. And I hope that comes across. I'm doing less preaching than I am inviting like a broader people to come in and help me figure this out. Yeah, there's a lot of humility. I hope so, because I, I do like genuinely struggle with this. In giving the curbside chat over the years, there was kind of a sense that I got where iteration one was the sky is falling. Like it's a chicken little message. Iteration number two is chicken little plus like, here's some things that you can do. But then iteration number three was chicken little sky's falling. Here's some things you can do. And oh, by the way, I don't know, but I think life might be better if we did this stuff. And that was kind of the, what I wanted to leave people with was, I'm not going to say I can predict the future. And I'm not going to say that like, Life is full of sacrifice. And if we make those sacrifices, like life will be better. But I think there's reason to believe that if we got 
more back to authentic human habitat. And if we, if we live in places of meaning and if we live with intention, that our lives will be a lot better and people will be happier. And we'll, these things that you know, look like sacrifice and look like losing and look like giving up um, might actually be a path to something much more fulfilling. I try not to assert that as fact because I, I will plainly say like, I don't know. Um, but I hope I give like enough reasons why I have optimism. That's the case. One of the quotes that stood out to me is on page 209 for those following along at home. And it touches on the kind of red blue divide in America, which is something that we talk a lot about strong towns or subtly talk about. So you write, the deep irony of the post-war development experiment is that it was largely a liberal-initiated destruction of the hive wrapped in the language of both nationalism and justice that has now grown to be sacred to conservatives. Untangling that Gordian knot of culture is going to require deep intention and huge doses of empathy by those who grasp the urgency of the situation. This quote just like really well summarizes so much of the tension and challenge of, you know, our current development pattern and the political divides in our country right now. Where are you at with that currently? And do you, are you feeling hopeful that we can like find a middle place between these desires about how to live and how to vote and all that or hopeless right now? You remember discussions we would have here about, oh my gosh, it's an election year. <laughs> that means that means the world's going to get crazy. And yeah, and then a it lot got of, way more crazy than we could ever uh, thought. <laughs> I know. And a lot of our internal conversation was, how do we be meaningful without getting wrapped up in the crazy? You know, how do we help people? Let me riff on that paragraph a minute because there's a part of me, the, the deeply conservative part of me, feels like the first part is a slam dunk on progressives, right? It's like the progressives of the 1920s uh, looking at the city and how the city was, was not solving everybody's problems saying we can do things better. And so here's like this myriad of top down centralized programs to fix all the problems of the city, including, you know, urban renewal and highway construction and, and housing finance. And we're going to, we're going to solve every problem with a big solution. For me, that's the destruction of the hive. That is the, let's take this habitat for bees that's grown up over thousands of years and let's just remake it. Because if we do that, we can remake the bees and the bees will be happier and better and more wonderful. It's this lack of humility really, and lack of acknowledgement of the spooky wisdom of, of the past. The challenge is, and this is maybe where I've evolved or, or pushed myself a little bit to question some of my core beliefs about things. This system now is sacred to conservatives. I mean, a, a lot of the pushback we get uh, whenever we venture outside of the financial argument, start talking about the way people live and, and quality of life and, and equity and justice and what have you, comes from people who largely are reacting in a very conservative reactionary way to resist change. We have big box stores for a reason. We have frontage roads for a reason. These are all logical things. Why would we change? I think that if conservatives, I'll start with conservatives. I think that if conservatives can 
acknowledge that they're living in this big experiment and that there is a wisdom of the past that is important to today that that we can gain from that 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 we can humble ourselves to actually acknowledge that exists and if progressives can in a sense repress the the impulse that many of them have to to reshape the world overnight in in their new vision i actually think there's like a happy place for us to meet you know there's a happy place for people to come together and say okay we can all agree that these human problems are real, that they're a struggle, that, that we should, with intention, try to address them. But we also all agree that we're starting from where we're at now, and we've got to work incrementally off that. And we've got to, with purpose and intention, make these changes. But, but it's not a radical, throw out the baby with the bathwater, completely remake the hive kind of thing. It, it's actually acknowledging that humans are complex, our environments are complex, and, and we need to approach it with, with that level of thoughtfulness. You've been involved in this for a long time. It, is that a more refined version of, of what we were trying to say three, four years ago, or am I saying something different? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I'm wondering how that's been reflected in the events that you've been doing, you know, I don't know how many events and different places you've been to since you started Strong Town, like probably hundreds, if not thousands. Like, do you see more political diversity and geographic diversity, other types of diversity in the audiences that are being receptive to the Strong Town's message on your most recent travels? I think there's no doubt. At our last event in Spokane, just as a place marker in this conversation, I spoke at Gonzaga University. And after the talk, I had a professor come up and she was an African-American woman. I would guess she's about my age. I, I, I maybe a little bit older. I don't know, around my age. And she said to me, I am, and I don't think she said expert, but my field of expertise or study is restorative justice. And this message resonates with me and has a ton of overlap in the restorative justice field. You're using much of the same language. You're finding much of the same insights. I'm just really inspired. We're trying to get her on a future podcast or a future uh, interview and kind of delve into her work because quite frankly, it's outside of my area of expertise. I would like to learn more. I think the remarkable thing about that interaction was that it's really not remarkable anymore. Seven, eight years ago, it would have been absolutely remarkable, but, but today, when I travel around, we're seeing this broad swath of humanity that, that I never envisioned would be interested in strong town ideas are showing up for a lot of different reasons. And, and one of them is because of what they see as a, a justice side of it. I've learned to kind of embrace that and lean into it because I think the Catholicism side of me has seen that as having a strong parallel with the mission that I feel I have in life in general. I feel like it's changing and changing in ways that are really healthy. And if I can just have a little interlude here, reflecting on my time at strong town, probably this is like the most important thing that I have learned and gained from the time at strong town, just the ability to like look past political divisions, speak to people as people and communities as communities and not, be blinded by like charged political language and hot button issues and 
be able to like drill down and speak to the values and concerns of people. Um, and that's certainly like what I desire to keep doing. Is it fair to say that you and I in Minnesota and in elections where we've, we've had a chance to vote for, for the same candidates on the ballot have probably never voted for the same candidate. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably not. I think having you here and having to work to understand you and your frame of mind and your frame of reference and just like the generosity you showed and the, the patience you showed. Uh, people don't get to see behind the curtain here very often, but th there were many times where I would send you something and say, the conservative part of me is kicking in and I'm pushing, I, I, I don't get this. I don't like, this is not cool. Explain this to me. And I hope that I listened and, and I hope that I, uh, spent time thinking about what you said. I certainly feel like you changed my perspective or, or certainly made it way more informed on a lot of things that I had general knee-jerk reactions to. I hope I did the same for you too. Yeah, and I've kind of like brought all that learning into the environment of school and the city that I'm in, both of which lean like very far left. And I mean, as everyone knows, we're in like a moment where everything is us versus them and those guys are the enemy. And like, I can't believe you would even entertain listening to that type of person. Yeah, I'm trying to like kind of be an evangelist for, no, let's actually listen to other people and see people as human beings and not just live in our own boxes, ignoring everything outside of us. So I appreciate that Strong Town continues to persist in that effort at maybe the most challenging time in history to do that. It's very hard. And, you know, this chapter is called An Intentional Life. The political part of this is that it's very intentional. And I even wrote about Aaron Brown and I, I think I started that radio show after you left. Maybe, I don't know. Was I doing Dig Deep when you were here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I really love my colleague on there, Aaron. He's a, he's a nice man. He's a nice guy. We, we joke around and we get along on a personal level. He was on the podcast once too. And you guys all laughed at me for my deep Minnesota accent <laughs> when I started hanging out with him. Oh but, yeah. Oh yeah. You know, it takes a lot of work to not fall back into those habits of being right and slam dunking on someone. And like, you're, you're wrong from my perspective and bam, as opposed to stop and say, okay, why would this thoughtful, compassionate, very intelligent person say something antithetical to what I believe? Why, why would he do that? And I, I think exploring that, that idea, it doesn't necessarily change my mind all the time, but it certainly opens, has opened me up to how other people think about things and why that's not invalid or even wrong, even if I don't agree with it per se. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Switching gears, bringing it down to the neighborhood level. The other quote that I pulled out that stood out to me in this chapter is on page 214. You wrote, Still, as a Catholic who struggles with living my faith, here for the first time I was among people who had structured their place to reinforce the lives they desired to live. Uh, and in your, where you're talking about um, encountering a Hasidic Jewish community in New York in this section, but also in this chapter, you talk about um, your experience in Italy during college, right? And then 
also your your choice to move your family from kind of edge of town cul-de-sac to being right in the heart of Brainerd. Where are you at with thoughts on neighborhoods and life choices these days? I think the Hasidic Jew story is a, a fascinating one because I think I even said this in the book, like they called, they literally called and asked, would you help us build a city in rural Kansas? And I'm like, I am so unqualified for this. Of course I'll do it. <laughs> I went to New York and this is my second trip ever to New York, I think. So, I mean, this was not only a cultural thing, Christian to Jew, but this was a cultural thing, like, you know, small town to one of the most intense hyper-urban neighborhoods in, in the country, in Williamsburg, in Brooklyn. To go there and essentially live among these Hasidic Jews for a, a short period of time and to get to know them and make friends with them and understand their life. For people who don't know, they've essentially carved out like a very different way of living and being than the people around them. I've since come to understand how controversial this can be. One of the controversies that we've rubbed up against here at Strong Towns is the Hasidic have been very upset about bike lanes. And part of it, and take this for what it is, part of it is they, they don't want scantily clad women riding on bikes through their neighborhoods. As secular Americans, we kind of are like, okay, well, that happens. Um, get used to it. But for them, they've kind of intentionally structured this place to kind of emphasize different values. Let's just put it that way. I think in talking to them, there's a part of me that was struck, and I'm going to use a strong word, so be, be forgiving. There was a part of me that was struck with the backward nature of it. When we look at it with like a secular society lens, women in spandex riding through is going to lead our, our flock astray. And, and that's not good. It seems backward. On the other hand, for every one of those examples, I had a, a dozen examples of just beauty, just, just like sheer giving and beautifulness. I, I wrote about one of them in the book where this one guy I got to be real good friends with Mosh. We were at his place in his living room. He had this child's area and he had two little kids in there. I, I knew he didn't have babies, but here's two like infants and they're screaming and they're, you know, not very happy and they're trying to sue them. And his wife is there and uh, the other, his other kids are there and they're doing what they can. And I'm like, who are these kids? And he's like, well, they're, they're my neighbor's kids. And I'm like, why are they here? Well, the, the rabbi asked us to look after him for a few days. The neighbors are having difficulty in their marriage. They need time to work on it. We're kind of helping them take the pressure off of that. And so, you know, we've got their kids for a while. And I'm like, wow, how, how long? And he's like, I, I don't know, till they come and get them back. And I thought about that. And I've thought about like when my brother is called and like, will you watch my kids? And I'm like, yeah, of course I'll watch your kids. And you're kind of annoyed and you do it anyway because, you know, you got to help them out, but you're, you're busy and got things going on. And you look at even with like my closest relatives, I'm kind of, selfish with my time and selfish with my energy. And I'm selfish. I'll donate a hundred bucks to this, or I'll donate, you know, money to that. I'll give to the church every week. You know, I'll, I'll do all those things that I'm supposed to do. But the thing that I have that I'm jealous of and that I guard is like my time and my energy and, and really internally my passion. You could just say my love, you know, I'm, I'm very jealous with it. And here I was among people 
who were oriented completely different. They were in some ways selfish with their money, right? They were in some ways selfish with their possessions. I mean, I, I did run into that a little bit, especially when we started talking about the effort it would take to do what they were asking me to do. You know, it was not going to be like a cheap undertaking. But on the other hand, I ran into people who were just beautiful and, and lovely in how they gave of themselves to each other from all observations that I could get with no expectation of having that repaid other than that, this is what you do in this community of people. I've meditated on that a lot because it's a life that I think I aspire to live. And it's a life that I think the Catholic faith would call me to live, but it's not a life that comes easy to me. And it's not a life that I often as I reflect on my life, it's not a life that I have lived. And I think that is the, uh, that's the hard part, right? Yeah. I'm thinking a lot about this stuff for myself as well. Like we we live on a really adorable neighborly street right now. That's like Harvard grad student housing and our neighbors across the hall are going to have a baby soon. And we're like going to be their number one support which is beautiful, but also, you know, we're thinking about, okay, we can't live in this apartment forever because once I'm not at Harvard, then I have to go find a normal apartment. City life can be not super conducive to everyone loving each other on the street. You know, people in their apartments are just like, don't talk to each other, don't interact. And then the alternative is, okay, like move out way out to the suburbs because Boston is so expensive, can't afford anything. So, that's all just to say, I'm thinking about a lot of this for myself now and like for the future. No easy answers. I feel like what I recognize here and, and the thing that ultimately, because I was still living in the the old house at the time I went and did this project in Brooklyn or went and, and talked to them about, about doing this project. We ultimately didn't do it. So there's no uh, Hasidic Jew city in Kansas right now built by Chuck Marone. It, it does not exist. Actually, I'll, I'll give you a funny side note. This comes out a little bit in the book, but I'll give you, I didn't use their words for it. They ultimately decided not to do it because we couldn't figure out how to get them what they called Jew infrastructure. And Jew infrastructure is like contact with their rabbi and their religious community, kosher foods. You know, there's a whole bunch of like things involved in their practices that we like logistically couldn't figure out how to do in the middle of rural Kansas, you know, at least not in the way they wanted to do them. So they called it Jew infrastructure, which I got home and, and I go to my isolated suburban house out in the middle of nowhere with my wife and kids. And, and I look around and I'm like, I don't have any Catholic infrastructure here either. To the extent that I practice my faith, it is something that I have to practice despite my surroundings. It, it, it's something that I have to do in kind of conflict with the surroundings that I live in. I have to very intentionally get up and drive a long distance to get to a church. I go in and spend a short amount of time and then I drive home. And if I want to participate in parish life, if I want to serve my neighbors, if I want to do any, any of those things as part of this broader church community, I have to work very hard to do that. In Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, you had to work hard to avoid it. You know, it was, it was the opposite. Like living there, if you would have wanted to not help the neighbor because the rabbi asked you, you would have had to work hard to avoid the rabbi or, or you know, find some excuse. 
it was that juxtaposition for me that was kind of the stark contrast, right? Yeah. So to close this out, I just wanted to find out how it feels to have the book in your hands and done. Because I remember you've been talking about writing this book for a long time. And probably it was like an idea in your head even before you were talking about it with people like me. So what is it like to have it finally be here? I think there were a couple of milestones that jump out at me. The, the first one was signing the contract and being like, wow, this is going to happen. And, you know, kicking down, cause I had six months to write it. And I found out later that basically no one thought I would meet this deadline because they're like, he's yeah, signing really up. fast. Yeah. They're like, he's signing up for something and authors just don't, I mean, especially first time authors don't do this. And I submitted it a month early. I mean, I, <laughs> I they're like, why what, what? were you able to do it so fast? Was it like, because it was all in your head for so long? I'll tell you the hard part w- was what I wasn't going to put in it. I mean, we're not going to break any news here today. But, you know, one of the reasons why I was capable of doing this the way I did is because there's another book coming. I mean, I, I basically said, all these other thoughts are going to go in another book somewhere. The act of simplifying meant I didn't have to tell the whole story. I could just tell this part of the story. The outline was actually hard. And then once I had it, it was just a matter of kind of like diet and exercise, just sitting down every night to work on it and keeping myself to deadlines. I think submitting it was the other milestone. You know, when I sent it in and uh, I had it all printed out here and, and, and bound up and, and the cover was done by then. And so I, I kind of looked at it, say on my desk, and then I, I click send. It was a moment where I thought, yeah, it was like climbing a mountain. Um, like I reached the summit, like this is really cool. Uh, since then, it's been this whirlwind because you go through content editor and then the copy editor and then all these different iterations of looking at drafts and proofs. And then this long period of radio silence. And then all of a sudden on my front porch, there's this box and I open it up and there's a hardcover book. And I have to say, um, the very first two out of the box, I set aside for each of my kids and they don't care now. Like they're not, they think it's kind of, they're like boring, you know, <laughs> they're like if you can't put it on Snapchat, it's not interesting. I put them away for them. And I think someday, you know, and maybe it will be decades and decades from now, but someday they will be part of their scrapbook stuff. And, and I think it will hopefully matter to them. You know, this is something your dad did with his life that mattered to him and, and hopefully matters ultimately to other people. They got the, literally the first two copies out of the box. So, and I know that you partially dedicated the book to them too. Yes. Funny. To Joe, to, uh, my wife and also to these two kids. I do. I said in in the dedication that I feel like they've sacrificed too much. And there's obviously a lot of trade-offs with what, what I do and and what we, we do here at strong towns, um, the travel and the weird hours. And, and I think even more than that, the fact that sometimes when dad's home, he might physically be there, but mentally his brain is, churning on something and it is not there. And I, I've tried to limit that. You know, I shut my phone off and I, and I try to be present, but these kids have grown up in a home where they've been asked to sacrifice things that other kids aren't. It's important to me that I acknowledge that not only in the book, but just in my day-to-day life. They're the most important thing in my life. So I, I owe them a ton. 
Yeah. So what's next for you, for Strong Towns? Here's the way I've been explaining this. And I think I might even said this in one of the podcasts earlier this week. We use the movement that we've built to sell this book. And the pre-sale numbers have been awesome. The immediate sales have been fantastic. We're at the top of a whole bunch of categories on Amazon, which is super like cool, amazing. And, and I think when the sales numbers start to come out in like official format, I'm optimistic that we're going to be really happy with them too. The, the people in this movement have really come through for us in a big way. But now we shift to this second phase where we use this momentum to sell the movement and we use the book to sell the movement. I didn't spend the time putting this together. We haven't spent this time as a, as an organization getting this out there so that we could sell books. You really don't make anything selling books anyway. And, and it's not a revenue stream for us per se. We're using this to now propel this movement, reach more people with this message, have it impact them. We can now hand them like the wildest, this, this strong down stuff is, is interesting. Well, here is like, the book explaining what we're doing and it's complete and it's a, it's a, it's an easy read and it's a good read. So our hope is to use now the momentum that our members and audience has given us to double, triple, quadruple their numbers and, and really make this work that, that you've done, that I've done, that, that we've all kind of, you know, had us labor of love for many years, really, really start to impact the landscape of North America in a way we can all be proud of. That's what's next. And I've got this three month marathon now, a book tour uh, to kind of kick that off. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. to hear about. Yeah. I am super proud of you guys. I know. And I'm super proud of you. I was just going to say Boston is not on our list of places in 2019. Um, I know I was checking the list. Well, I know it's going to be on the list in 2020. So when when that happens, not only will you and I have to sit down and and have lunch again, but I think we should, uh, I think we should find a way to do something really spectacular around where you're at. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. There would be a lot of momentum. We need that strong town's message here as we need it everywhere. Let me ask this now, as, as long as we're closing down, where do you think you'll be a year from now? In an ideal scenario, what does the life of Rachel Quidna look like in September of 2021? Yeah, well, I wish I knew fully, but I think I can say definitely we'll be in Boston uh, or in this area. And I'm hoping to work in the conflict resolution peace building field in some way. Like I said earlier, I you know I'm I'm really passionate about more dialogue and bridge building across the political divide in America. Um, That's certainly one area that I think needs a lot of help and love and care right now. And certainly plenty of other divisions in our world that I would be interested in participating in healing in some way. So I'm not sure what that looks like, probably nonprofit or government of some sort, but that's what I'm hoping to do. Yeah. Well, I, unfortunately, I think as we approach the fall of 2020, there there probably won't be much need for those kind of people, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything will just be calm. And <laughs> everything will be, be 
We'll all love each other. Loving each other and holding uh-huh. hands. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> if only. <laughs> well, thank you not only for being a friend and a colleague and for taking the time to do this and, and, and read the book and on all this stuff, but thank you for that work too. I mean, I do know that you've sacrificed to be where you're at and doing what you're doing. And, and I have a deep amount of respect and honor for you. And I, I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, thank you. I've learned so much from you and it was so special to participate in Strong Towns and to still be part of it loosely at least. And yeah, thanks for letting me be on the podcast. Congrats on the book. Super exciting. Thank you. Do you want to close us off? Do you still have the same tagline? Oh, you bet we do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thanks everyone for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong town. Taking risk is a necessity for becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.